0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Steve, you're not the kind of person that can turn your back on something you know is true. I don't know. Well, you actually did see what happened to Dr. Hallam. How do you know I did? It, because I know you. Okay. Well, now what do we do? How do you get people to protect themselves from something they don't believe in? Well, you keep trying and, and hoping you can find some sort of uh, proof that'll convince them. Okay. I mean, I don't like it much. But I guess the only way you can find that is to go out and look for it.
1: Good morning London. It is Thursday, March 22nd, 2012. I'm Robert Vaughn and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Well, we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color. color into black and white.
0: Under the everything will be
1: right. So welcome to the show today. Now last week We were joined in studio by Professor Christopher Essex of UWO's Department of Applied Mathematics and Lord Christopher Monckton. And today, we are going to depart from our usual format, once again, as we've done this before in the past, in order that I may present an interview I had with Lord Monckton earlier this week. Lord Monckton's public notoriety, of course, is as a preeminent climate change critic traveling the world presenting his analysis of the evidence and data refuting the claims of the United Nations International Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. Last week we discovered that he is much more a journalist, entrepreneur, policy advisor to Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, classical architect, mathematician, and inventor. He's also been called a polymath. Now the purpose of my interview was to delve deeper into the puzzle that is Lord Moncton and find out What motivates him? Who were his intellectual influences? How does his education differ from the education people receive today? How has journalism changed over the past 40 years? Does he have a solution to the Islamification of the West? I also discover that his several accomplishments are due to the productive effort, genius, and luck, and not as a result of his aristocratic heritage. Here's my interview. With Christopher Monckton now in many ways as a climate change critic skeptic you're faced with uh, an insurmountable almost insurmountable opposition there's a lot of them and it's like swimming against the tide what is your motivation for taking on that particular issue when did you first start and why well
2: I first looked at climate change nearly 30 years ago when I was working for Margaret Thatcher as one of her six policy advisors and because none of us was a scientist or at least none of us had a bit of paper to say we were, uh, then uh, because I knew a little mathematics and a bit of science, faute de mieux, I often gave her uh, advice on behalf of the unit on scientific questions and indeed the lecture that I have just given as we record this uh, at the University of Western Ontario, the Nirenberg Lecture on mathematics, addressed the question of how does uh, the courtier, the advisor, who is inexpert, give advice expertly? That's what I call the courtier's conundrum. And so my background when on this climate question uh, began then. And at that time, as I say, about 30 years ago, my advice to the Prime Minister, well, the scientific community, was beginning to say we have a problem and we need to look at it. And so I said to the Prime Minister, you need to watch this one. It's the kind of thing where pressure is building up. Um, It may get out of hand. We need to know where the truth lies. And it looks to me as though there may be something in it. Carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere is rising. Uh, It's very plausible that it's we who are causing this. It's elementary science that this will cause
1: some warming. The question, of course, is how much. So you actually began mm. believing perhaps there was something to it. Absolutely, and indeed,
2: uh, the more the scientists made a noise at that stage, after I left number 10, I went on to national television and gave the first public explanation of how the greenhouse effect worked and why it might be a problem. This was on uh, the then leading chat show, the Clive James Show. And I was on with Anita Roddick, who founded The Body Shop, and with Jonathan Porritt, who was an environmental campaigner. Now he has all sorts of lavish government posts. And they had each chosen different topics as the major concern. I think Anita Roddick had chosen the rainforest, and he had chosen the ozone hole. I said, no, those are going to pale into insignificance, beside global warming as the next big issue and I took the glass of water from the table and stuck my finger in it to show how the greenhouse effect worked. And they filmed all this and broadcast it. I wrote, I remember, an article in the Evening Standard saying, I've bought a house on Richmond Hill, and the rest of you, as the sea level rises and the Thames floods London, are going to have to take to the boats. Uh, uh, Slightly light-hearted, but nevertheless, saying there may be a problem here. And that indeed was what was thought at the time. But I'm glad to say that I had left Number 10 before the Prime Minister eventually decided she needed to do something about it. And it was two years after I left that my successor there, George Guise, went to Chequers with her, that's her country house uh, just outside London, to write the speech to the Royal Society that she gave, announcing that she was going to provide funding for what became the Hadley Centre, whose task was to find out whether there was a problem about global warming, and if so, what to do about it, and they of course have now become cheerleaders for what one might call the frenetic or climate extremist or alarmist, or I sometimes call it the Marxist point of view, because it's astonishing how the hard left and the environmentalists have come together in recent years. And, and now stand together on this. So George Guys was sitting there with Margaret in, num- in uh, Chequers, bitterly cold October weekend, and they were throwing logs on the fire to try and keep themselves warm, chuckling to each other as they wrote the speech she gave. And I was rereading this recently for a book I'm writing on global warming, and was astonished to see that at that time she had predicted that temperatures would be increasing by one Celsius every 10 years. Whereas that's probably 10 times more than it's going to do. I think we're looking at maybe one Celsius per century. Certainly that's how much it's been, uh, or equivalent, over the last 50 or 60 years. I don't think it's going to accelerate very much from that, even with China and India, and eventually even Africa, beginning to produce much more in the way of carbon dioxide emissions. I think there is a limit to the rate at which the climate is, is likely to warm up. But that was what she said then. And that goes well beyond what I would have let her say. I took a very cautious view of these scientific questions. Unless proof could be provided that there was clear evidence of such an extreme rate of warming, then I would not have allowed any government scientific advisor to get away with making her say that. I would simply say, no, there isn't the evidence, and you mustn't push it just because that's the currently fashionable point of view among the
1: scientific community whose views you represent. Now, if I could just go back in time a bit, mm. because in the mid, uh, early to mid-1980s, uh, when you did advise Margaret Thatcher at yeah. number 10, you were probably in your 30s, early 30s? I was 30 when I joined, 30s yes. so I would have been
2: 28, but for two years, my appointment was delayed by a clique of permanent staff in Number 10 who were evangelical Protestants and didn't want a Catholic there. And in the end, she squared them by saying that if uh, they didn't allow her to appoint me, she would
1: announce an inquiry into Freemasonry, and they (laughs) backed off. (laughs) So at the age of 30, you would have had something in your background which would make you attractive to be an advisor to a Conservative Prime Minister. Yes. Could you talk a bit about your educational background, where you graduated from, and what kind of qualifications, uh, credentials, officially, that you may have that would have attracted them to you?
2: Right. Remember that I came from an aristocratic background. My grandfather was a cabinet minister and a peer of the realm. My father was the army's youngest general. I was born with several silver spoons in my mouth. I was educated at Harrow School, the best public school in the world, which of course is a private school, which is the way we call it. Uh, I was then sent to Cambridge to study classical architecture, which I got my degree in. Then I went to University College Cardiff to do a postgraduate degree in the study of journalism and then went straight to the Yorkshire Post where within a year or two I was writing uh, the editorial comments for the paper alongside the chief leader writer Tom Gle- Greenwell. And it was there that I came to Number 10's attention because they, uh, are not Number 10 as it was then, it was then the Conservative Party in opposition, because I was writing many editorial comments, uh, which were not signed of course, but on uh, uh, political topics, and they were liking what we were saying. And eventually they said to the chairman of United Newspapers, which owned the Yorkshire Post, who is this guy that has changed the style of the editorial comments in the Yorkshire Post to make them much more hard-hitting and much more effective? And uh, he said, oh yes, he's a protégé of mine, Christopher Monckton. And so I was invited down to London for interview with the... um, Very senior PR executive who ran the Conservatives uh, press office and they then invited me down to Conservative central office uh, to work in the press office for a year during which time I made many contacts and the crucial one I think was Sir Alfred Sherman who was the director of studies at the Center for Policy Studies which was a think tank founded by Margaret Thatcher and Sir Keith Joseph while Edward Heath was still leader of the party and he was way on the left and uh, Thatcher and Keith Joseph, like like me, were somewhere to the right of Genghis Khan, and so um, they founded this this uh, institute which um, Alfred Sherman ran. He was a terrific character, and he invited me to see him. He had seen one or two speeches I had drafted for uh, MPs and had liked the style. Again, he said, "Who's doing this?" And so I was invited over to see him at his basement office in the. That little house in westminster which was the, the institute's headquarters and i went downstairs and he said um he just we, we just talked of this and that because he was sizing me up a bit and um, he said you know one of the things i think that's terribly important is that there should be a national home for the english See, <laughs> and uh, so i laughed uproariously he had a, a strong thing about immigration And I said, you know, you're absolutely right. I think we've got to start by sending all the Jews back where they came from. He, of course, was a Jew, and he could see I was joking. (laughs) He laughed uproariously and ordered cake. And that joke (laughs) was probably what got me into number 10, Um, because the moment he ordered cake, this was a mark of the very highest favor. (laughs) And uh, so he and I became fast friends. He's merry in heaven now, but, Uh, And we got on terribly well because we had the same mischievous sense of humour, same way of looking sideways on at political problems and finding a new angle into them. And he then made me the secretary of the Central Study Group there, which was a Forward Strategy Study Group, uh, where, among other things, the, the first head of Margaret Thatcher's policy unit used to come and one of the members of the unit, they would come every, roughly it was every week, Uh, to the meetings, I would take the minutes and since I did shorthand I was able to give extremely full minutes, which I think many of them kept because they were, these were the discussions that ultimately led to Thatcherism. Um, And so I got to know the people at Number 10, they immediately tried to get me in when she uh, took office as Prime Minister and that didn't happen straight away because various people, didn't want it to happen, but eventually she got her way
1: and I was invited in. Well, what's interesting is that she invited you in, or at least you were brought to the attention of the conservative policy um, people, not because of who you were, because the articles were anonymous. That's right. But because of what you said. Exactly. Right, so a lot of people may think that your aristocratic background Mm. got you this in, ...when in fact it was actually your ideas and how you expressed them. It was my natural genius and ability. There you go. Yes. Uh, or something. But no, I go- mean, I,
2: of course, in all these things, there is luck. Of course there of is. Of course, yes. And if you look at the chain of circumstances that got me number 10... ...it's a series of lucky breaks. Well. No. And so I, I, I know the old Latin saying is Faber Quisque fortune sue ...everyone is the engineer of his own fortune... ...but I think I have been lucky beyond what most people would have the right
1: to expect. To go back to your education, was there any particular professor who may have been your mentor or uh, advisor or or somebody that you looked up to, influenced you?
2: Well, I was at Churchill College, Cambridge, which was a very left-wing college. And my tutor there, who was the vice-master of the college, was a bit of a horror. So uh, I didn't get much of use from him. Uh, It was always slightly daggers drawn between us. But I think of all the various professors I worked with, Professor Hugh Plummer was um, a very great man. He was the professor of classical archaeology and gave me my love in particular of classical architecture and also taught me some of my earliest proper mathematics. I begin to realize how influential it was in shaping how the world worked. And so that's where I got mathematics from. And as for politics, that began at Cambridge, but it began uh, really at the Cambridge Union. And that was the debating society, the oldest, I think, one of the oldest uh, university debating societies in the world, certainly a lot older than the Oxford Union. And the interesting thing there was that there was a a dominant uh, left-wing control of the Union at the time, and the left wanted to take away the air of privilege, take away the debate, turn it into just another cafeteria come commune like any other student union. And I was against this and I managed to discover that there was an Act of Parliament that protected institutions of this kind and that the Cambridge Union had been set up under that Act of Parliament so that the members had to be consulted in referenda of all the members who had been, ever been members, as well as who were still members. And so we put out notices and said, come back and vote. And in that vote, they only got a bare majority of 27 votes out of several thousand votes cast. They needed a two-thirds majority, and they needed to do it again a month later, which they clearly weren't going to succeed in doing. So the, uh, the project failed. And that did two things. One, it taught me that it doesn't matter that you're in the minority, and it doesn't matter what the politics are. In the end, it's the facts that matter. And if you're in the minority, you can still bring the majority to a complete standstill, provided you have the truth on your side, and provided there is some democratic mechanism for making sure that the truth is asserted. And ever since then, I have been very fond of the referendum, as a way of consulting people directly on what they want, rather than the top-down approach, where the governing class tells them what's
1: good for them. That seems to fly in the face of your contention that the truth is not a matter of consensus, though.
2: No, it isn't, and that's a very fair uh, and, uh, and shrewd question. But uh, what are we asking the people when we ask the people? We're not asking them to decide scientific questions. I mean, you couldn't have a vote to decide whether the Pythagorean theorem is true or even whether we're going to get dangerous global warming. That would not tell you anything useful, even if it's a vote among scientists. When you have a vote on, for instance, whether the Cambridge Union should remain the Cambridge Union, as it had always been intended to be, whether it should become a cafeteria, come commune, then there, what you're asking, you're asking the members what they want. There is no objective truth there. It's a matter of their choice. And so when you're consulting people in a referendum, you're, you're asking them what they want. And that's the one circumstance in which consensus does matter because it's the people
1: who know best what is best for the people. Interesting. Now you've probably seen over the past 30, 40 years quite a change in educational methods, institutions, uh, the quality of the students, the professors. Do you think, do you have any ideas perhaps about how any of these changes may have been responsible for the ease with which people seem to accept what, to many of us, consider to be incorrect or even immoral. Is it the, is it the ed- educational institutions that are to blame on this? Let's first of
2: all define what we might mean by what's incorrect or immoral. I think there are a number Those of things... Those things that are which fly in the face of logic, reason, science, right. truth... And I think the global warming thing is a very good example of that because here is a potential problem that's been magnified beyond all reason and long before we actually need to take any steps to do, about it, uh, to do anything about it when there are much more immediate and real uh, problems facing our poorer uh, fellow citizens in places like Africa they need our help now and they're not basically getting it. So what has happened to the educational standards? Well, there has been a decline. I think it's been a rather sad decline it's been a very rapid decline. To some extent, in my more feverish moments, I think it's been an organised decline. Every generation from the Middle Ages until my generation was taught three subjects before they could approach higher education. You had to be taught grammar, which I had practically beaten into me at my prep school, so that I really understood how the English language hung together so that I knew the pathway of thought that is language there are only two pathways of thought really one is language and the other is mathematics which is itself a kind of language and a very concise, precise and logical one but language is the pathway of thought so you have to start by really understanding how your language hangs together grammar the second of the three elements in the medieval trivium, as it was called, was logic, and this was how to think straight. Once you've got the language under your belt, how do you think straight? How do you think in a way, uh, in such a way, that you start an argument with a series of declarative statements or premises, and do those premises validly entail the conclusion of your argument? That's what logic is all about. And then, of course, if the premises are true and they validly entail the conclusion of the argument, then the argument itself is sound because its conclusion must be true. And I was taught logic. Everybody was. That was part of what you did before you went to university. And the third element, in the medieval trivium, which was taught all the way from the Middle Ages until my generation, but not thereafter, was rhetoric. Once you have done your uh, language, and you've understood that, and you've done your logic, and you've understood that, then how do you express yourself using your language in a logical fashion, but in a way which is going to commend your argument to those... To whom you're addressing it. And this is not just in speech, it might be uh, in an essay, it might be in a book, it might be in a newspaper article, it might be in a leading article, it might be in a sonnet. We were taught all these things. How to express yourself once you have had the necessary training in what it is you're trying to say to make sure that you say it
1: elegantly and straight. Do you think it's right. fair to say that once you've learned those three elemental mm. um, pieces so of knowledge yes. and skills, hmm. that a person can, with a, such a classical education, go on to be anything they want to do.
2: Well, let me tell you a little story about that, yes. When Harold McMillan was, uh, went up to Oxford to study the classics, of course, he too, by that stage, had already studied grammar and logic and rhetoric. His tutor said to him, you're here for four years, it's a long course. Uh, at Oxford, it's three years at Cambridge, but they take longer to learn this stuff at Oxford, so it's, uh, it's four years there. And so his uh, tutor said to him, You will spend four years studying matters which are going to serve you with no usefulness at all in your future life. They have no value whatsoever, vocationally speaking, except in one respect, he said you will recognize rot when you hear it. <laughs> and that is what a classical education does. It gives you such a training that you are able to think very clearly
1: indeed. Now, from the changes in education, mm. from such a classical education to yes. that, the mess that we have today, if, yes. I, if I could editorialize. Yes. Um, journalism. Mm. You were trained as a journalist. Now, did you see any difference... In the methods or the the skills of a journalist from your era to the ones of today? A huge
2: change first of all when you mention a journalist of my era you begin to write remind me that age is creeping up on me but yes there's been an enormous change and I think we we need to go back to that medieval trivium just for a moment to illustrate how important this change that's happened is. See the medieval trivium Uh, was also rooted in Christian theology because the three subjects of the trivium, uh, grammar and logic and rhetoric, mirrored the three, and indeed informed, the three powers and developed the three powers of the uh, Christian soul, which are the memory, the use of reason, and the will. And there's parallels between the three. They're quite obvious. I don't need to describe them further. In other words, education was regarded as something which had a moral purpose so that one could learn to think in a moral way, that that thinking and speaking truly had a moral value. It was something that was not just expedient or convenient or profitable to do. It was right to do things that way. And one should not depart from the truth. And therefore, uh, carrying this into journalism and your question, my job as a journalist, if I was sent, shall we say, to report a political meeting, was to report what was said at the meeting. Had there been a meeting on global warming, it didn't matter what side I was on this debate, I would go to that meeting. If it was somebody on one side or somebody on the other, it didn't matter to me. My job, was to take down in shorthand what they said, to mark in the margin as I went through the bits I thought would be interesting, and then summarize theirs and condense it all into an informative article which fully and fairly reflected what the speaker had actually said. At no point in this process was there any room for editorial comment at all. That was not my job as a news reporter. You started by just uh, answering A.J.P. Taylor's question which is the title of his essay on history. The job of the historian and of the journalist who is writing history as it happens in an article when he's a reporter is to answer the question what happened next? Not to editorialise about it not to give his own views about it not to push the argument in one direction or another or to be snide about the speaker or distort what they said but just to report it.
1: That doesn't sound like a lot of journalism that I read today. No,
2: that's what's changed. Nowadays, journalists are nearly all from one narrow, rather poisonous political faction. I will call them bluntly Marxists. They are there to push their own political agenda to the exclusion of all others. They will not report any facts that are inconvenient to their point of view or that go against the storyline or the party line. They would call it a consensus, I call it the party line. And uh, journalism has now just become an extension of politics. It's no surprise, therefore, that the subscriptions to newspapers are plummeting, and uh, fewer and fewer people watch the mainstream television channels. Why? Because they're not going to get the news straight anymore. They're not going to be given the facts, so why should they waste their time reading endless pages of Marxist drivel. And even if you are a Marxist, it must get pretty boring, because you're never hearing the facts so that you can form your own opinion.
1: And we'll be back with uh, more of my interview with Lord Christopher Monckton after this short break.
0: Any luck getting information on Ryan Wiley's death? Zero. Everything comes back classified, access denied. But I did do a follow-up story on the ATAS. I just lost my story. Yeah. Somebody get me MIS. My computer just froze up. So did mine. Oh, brother, we're a half an hour before deadline. All right, everybody, listen up. We may have lost the battle, but not the war. We still got a newspaper to put out. Chief, we're fully computerized. All right, now, Jimmy, you're young, so Thank I'm going to excuse that. But believe it or not, there was a Daily Planet long before there were computers. There's no wire service of faxes, Chief. How? And then we're just going to pound the pavement like we did in the old days. First rule of journalism. You publish or you perish. Dale, yeah, I, I want you to round us up some typewriters. CD, right. go on down there and see if that old linotype machine still works. Jimmy, okay. I want you to stick with me like glue. You're about to find out what it means to be a real newspaper man. Al Gore's an environmentalist. Seems like a decent man, but he was tough to watch, you gotta admit. I, I know psoriasis sufferers who are more comfortable in their own skin than Al Gore. And I'll tell you what I didn't like. I didn't like his uh, take on education. I think he's a lapdog for the teachers' union. I mean, uh, you know, we've got some serious educational problems in this country, and I thought his aversion to get behind school vouchers... Was the talcum powder in the air that exposed his true laser? Now I should tell you, by way of biographical information, I was homeschooled. Uh, oddly enough, at a branch campus. But I, <laughs> I do know this about education: liberals don't want you to be able to help yourself vis-a-vis education because that would preclude them from being the ones to do the helping. And Munkhausen by proxy disease doesn't get any more proxy than that, my friends.
1: And welcome back to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where you can always reach us with your comments and questions at feedback at justrightmedia.org and listen to all of our past shows at justrightmedia.org. As well, you'll be able to find video of this particular interview. And now back to that conversation I was having with Lord Christopher Monckton.
2: And in general, what I think has begun to happen in education as well, is that whereas we were encouraged to learn enough facts to understand what we were looking at but then to use our own judgment and think for ourselves now they're taught not to do that they are taught only to reflect the party line and I'd like to give a little vignette which illustrates this at Union College Schenectady a couple of weeks ago I went and gave a talk on the climate and the environmentalists who these days are the modern equivalent of the Marxist event. They didn't call themselves Marxists now, that's a discredited name, but in effect they think the same way. They turned out in force to oppose my presence on campus. They set up a table with slogans written on messy pieces of recycled cardboard uh, and uh, people with messy hair telling people not to go in. So I went to talk to them no time they were all having such a row with me that everybody filed into the lecture hall and about 200 people turned up before they could stop them but then they had a counter meeting afterwards whose job was to try to refute all the errors that Monkton had perpetrated in his science but of course by now I've been doing this long enough that I'm making what is certainly a stateable case you might not agree with it but there isn't too much that is actually wrong with it So they were finding it fairly hard to do this. They were just reasserting the usual stuff that you hear from that side of the case. But I went and sat in the front row, since they'd come and listened to my uh, lecture and had asked questions, I thought, well, I'll go and uh, do them the favor of returning the compliment and hear what the other side has to say. And at one point in my talk, I had shown a slide of the graph that leads to the principal conclusion in the IPCC's 2007 report. This graph purports to show that in the last 160 years, the rate of global warming has not just carried on in a straight line, it's been accelerating, and that this acceleration is our fault. And they say this at least twice in the IPCC's 2007 report. And the way they they get this result is by choosing very carefully the start points of four different trend lines that all end in the present. And they show that the most recently starting uh... trend lines are steeper than the ones that came before and therefore they say this illustrates that the, the warming rate is accelerating well now this is a well-known and very bogus statistical technique i say it's well known it's well known among statisticians but if you're a policymaker reading this and you haven't got any background in mathematics that's the kind of trick that will fool you it's actually fraudulent there is no basis for any such conclusion but that's what they did So I demonstrated in my talk, uh, really quite compellingly, that this was a trick, by applying exactly the same technique to a sine wave whose trend by definition is zero, and showing that I could, depending on which segment of the sine wave I took, I could then choose my trend lines very carefully and show that the sine wave, in fact, was exhibiting an accelerating downtrend, or if I shifted the whole thing half a cycle, then I could show that the sine wave was, was exhibiting a rapidly accelerating uptrend. And that shows the technique is bogus, because I'm using the same technique on the same data where we know what the trend is. And uh, we get opposite results, both of which conflict with the real trend. So I've shown them all this, and it's really not difficult. You do not need to be Einstein to understand, once you've seen that demonstration, that that graph in the IPCC's 2007 report is bogus. So towards the end of their meeting, somehow the topic of this graph came up. I can't remember quite how. And I said, "Well, you know, that is an example of something which the IPCC got wrong, and it's simply not sensible." For that, there were four professors and several PhDs there, all saying the IPCC is perfect and wonderful. I said, "If you do not deal with the fact that over and over again they bend the evidence and data in this way, then you're not going to appear." credible, as the science gradually collapses, people are going to go back and say, well, why were all the professors teaching this wall-to-wall without the caveats, without showing where the IPCC is getting things wrong? And so the professor then snapped and said, right, I want everyone in this class to put their hand up if they agree with me that the IPCC got that graph right. And two-thirds of the hands in that class ...went up, even though they had seen that this graph was wrong... ...and they knew that the graph was wrong. So I said, right, hands up, all those of you who have just put your hand up... ...who are statisticians. One hand began to go up, stopped halfway and came back down again... ...because the guy suddenly realised that if he admitted he was a statistician... ...he had no excuse for having put his hand up to agree with the graph that he knew he was wrong. And you could see this thought process going uh, in his mind, and he brought his hand back down again. And then one of the uh, students said, ''Ah, but then are you a statistician?'' I said, ''Well, first of all, frankly, you don't need to be once you've seen the demonstration I've just given you. However,'' I said, ''I have learnt to be careful.'' And I sent, I anonymized the data that underlay this graph, And I sent it to a statistician, and I said, I want you to look at this anonymized data and tell me whether I can draw the following conclusions by taking the trend lines on the following periods. And the answer, of course, came back, no, of course you can't, because you can choose trend lines on different periods and get the same data to give you a precisely opposite result. So I then said to that class, I said, first of all, Professor, you shouldn't have done that. And to the rest of the class I said, don't you ever do that again. Don't you ever vote against what you know not to be true. Don't you ever vote that it is true when you know it isn't. Not even to appease authority. Because that's not what science is about. Science is about trying to reach the objective truth. And there must be no more nonsense of this kind ever again. You could have heard a pin drop. But you see, what has happened is that the notion of thinking for yourself has gone from education. And now all they're taught is the party line. And there is genuine shock, horror, disbelief and anger when somebody comes along and says, maybe the party line isn't right. Because they're simply not familiar with the fact that there could be an alternative point of view. And that shows, it seems to me, a very basic failure of education.
1: It's harder to get that point of view out, though, isn't it? There's a uh, seems to be an attack on freedom of speech in the West compared to what there was in the past, uh, mostly, I would say, by a liberal multiculturalist uh, uh, policy to appease those cultures which uh, don't even agree <laughs> with Western liberal democracies. The first do you find would, that that's the case? And I think the first thing is you do don't
2: be? call it liberal. Whatever else it is, not liberal. It's, it's
1: not classical liberal. It's, it's illiberal. Yes. In, in yes. the plain and full meaning of the term, yes. it's illiberal. You're absolutely right. Um, but here in Canada, I think that the capital L liberals are very much enough. the Americans. Even, even so, that don't
2: let them use such words without pointing out, even if it's the name of their party, without pointing out that it's the antithesis of what they actually mean by it. I agree they totally. They are illiberal. Yes. These are people who do not want any thought but the party line. To prevent very few read nineteen eighty four, that wonderful passage where the communist orator is spouting the party line. A note is handed up to him telling him the party line has changed 180 degrees. In mid sentence he begins he begins arguing 180 degrees against what he was arguing a moment before. And nobody comments because it's more than their life is worth. Once you're told the party line if you are a Marxist or an environmentalist, which is a new word for it, then you merely adopt the part of and you stop thinking. And stopping thinking is the antithesis of a proper education. Education is there to teach you how to think. And in fact, I'm about to write a book on, called just that, How to Think. And it's going to explain once again the classical methods of thought, their link to the soul, Their purpose, which is a moral purpose, to encourage people to think truly and think clearly and speak truly and never to adopt a mere party line on any side of any debate but always be prepared to rethink, as I have had to do on the global warming question, when the evidence changes. There's a wonderful remark by T.E. Huxley, I think, who said... uh, No, it wasn't him. It was um, John Maynard Keynes, who said... When the facts change, I change my opinions. What do you do, sir? If you follow the party line, you continue with the party line, regardless of the facts.
1: Now, you, you do quote quite a bit from philosophers, particularly Aristotle. Yes. Who would be your greatest philosopher of all time, your greatest influence?
2: I think there are a number of possibilities there. The remarkable thing about Aristotle is that in just two books, the prior and posterior analytics, he brought forth the entire science of logic, more or less complete, uh, rather like the goddess Athena springing fully armed from the head of Zeus. Um, Astonishing intellectual feat, the like of which has scarcely ever been seen. And so I think probably the greatest of the philosophers uh, that has influenced me is Aristotle but of course who influenced him? It was Plato at whose feet he sat and Plato in turn had recorded the dialogues of Socrates arguing against the the sophists the (laughs) the environmentalists or uh, Marxists of of his day who talked the same kind of sophisticated nonsense that um, these people talk and Socrates was using a particular technique to, so that they themselves could see they'd got it wrong. It makes people very angry if you do it and They get furious uh, when the, you show them their thoughts are self-contradictory. And that, that's very easy
1: if somebody's merely following a party line. Are you familiar with John McMurray, the philosopher, Scottish philosopher? Uh, I've not read him, but I know who you talk of, yes. Oh, I just wondered what your thoughts may have been on him or any other uh, modern-day philosopher.
2: Well, uh, certainly, if you look at, for instance... Um, Bertrand Russell. I find him rather tiresome. I mean, you take an example. He spent 150 pages trying to prove that A equals A. Now, the problem with that kind of thing is that A equals A is self-evidently true. It is an axiom. It is a postulate of mathematics. And to try to go back and say, well, we must try and prove that A equals A, that's the kind of vexatious diversion from the sort of more common sense approach to things that I find tiresome in quite a lot of modern philosophy. I like uh, John Stuart Mill very much, though, um, because he, too, he began to see the dangers in the state getting too big, which is, of course, rapidly done since his time. And one, one of the, the quotations from him that I like is that a state which dwarfs his men so that they become mere docile instruments in its hands will find that with, no, with small men, no great thing
1: can be accomplished. Any thoughts on, on Ayn Rand and her philosophy of objectivism?
2: I've not read that either,
1: though I'm broadly familiar with it,
2: so I can't comment intelligently on it. Uh, but it's nice that she has managed to achieve a penetration, particularly among young people, and particularly on this side of the Atlantic, which no uh, philosopher of the right has succeeded in doing, certainly
1: in the UK or, or Europe, in recent decades. Now, your Catholicism yes. seems to go with you wherever, wherever you go. Do you find it a necessary component of your research in your daily life when you're talking about climate change, when you're talking about mathematics, is that incorporated into all of that intellectual pursuits for Catholicism? Well, very much so, because there is a moral purpose to all of this. I mean, why should I bother
2: to go around the world being vilified, hither and yon, by the left?
1: You know, and they're very
2: cruel about it and very persistent about it. You feel
1: yourself have, you have a mission or a crusade?
2: No, good heavens no. Yeah. Uh, but why should I bother if there were not some moral uh, justification? for what I'm trying to do. No, it isn't a crusade. If people ask me to come and give a talk, I will come and give a talk. I don't ring up and say, right, uh, you need me to come and talk at your event or your university. I don't have a vast team of um, PR advisors who fix all this. It all happens because people get in touch and they say, we've seen your stuff on the web or whatever, and we would like to you know, come to our school, come to our university, come to our legislative assembly, and and we'd like to hear what your point of view is. And I do that because I'm asked to do it. But why would I bother to do it unless I thought that in doing that I was doing some good? I'm not here to argue a political point of view. The question whether or not we're faced with a dangerous global warming, and whether or not even if we were it is cost effective to try and do anything about it, these are not uh, questions which really ought to be political questions at all. They're matters of right and wrong. They're matters of objective truth and untruth. But if we take decisions on the basis that, uh, yes, there's dangerous warming when there isn't, or yes, we should spend endless amounts of money trying to make this warming go away, when, however much money you spend, you won't be able to make very much of it go away anyway. This could lead to the bankruptcy, in in direct financial terms, of many parts of the West, if we go on like this. So, uh, to have a voice of reason saying, well, look, hang on a moment, you need to do the sums before you take the decisions, this seems to me to be a necessary corrective to the rather common approach these days of deciding things via a party line rather than by the use of reason because if we lose the use of reason we lose that central power of the soul which chiefly differentiates us from the rest of the physical creation and chiefly gives us our likeness to our creator we must not lose our very humanity which is best marked out by the fact that we, as far as we can see more than any other critters, uh, can exercise the faculty of reason. If we throw that away, we're not just throwing out the baby with the bathwater, we're throwing the whole of humanity out at the same
1: time. Keeping with the theme of religion, Mm -hmm. um, what do you think of political Islam or Islam itself? And certainly you will not see People of uh, that particular faith, at least I'm not familiar with any, uh-huh. who are as um, reasonable, if you want to put it that way, coming out and saying that this is the truth in science, that we must follow this, or you must reject this nonsense. Um, do you find political Islam perhaps a dangerous threat to li- liberal democracies? If we go back to the 10th century,
2: at that time, Islam made a very curious intellectual mistake with catastrophic consequences in our own time, they decided to abandon Ishtihad. Now, Ishtihad was the process of exegesis by which the Quran and the various texts associated with it, because it's not just the Quran, there's a lot of other writings, were um, adapted, as it were, or the message was applied, not so much changing the text, but applying the message in a way that was relevant for the different conditions of each succeeding generation. This is a necessary and continuous process. Christian theology has to do it too, of course. And they stopped doing it. They decided that every question that could possibly arise in the future of humanity had already been answered by the the scholars of old and nothing more needed to be done. Now, with that shutting down of the religious exegesis, the religious Thinking and exposition of the teachings and their application to modern circumstances gradually came a collapse in what had been the remarkable intellectual ferment by which it was Islam that studied science. Indeed, I'm particular, particularly, I have a particular reason to be grateful to the scholars of Islam in those days because without them, the classical texts that I studied would have been lost to humanity altogether. It was they who preserved them in the library at Cordoba, And so when the Christians invaded and kicked out the Moors, they found these treasures which had been lost to Christendom. And without them, there would have been no Renaissance. There would have been no classical education. There would have been none of the logic uh, and, and all the other wonders that we get uh, from
1: the classical world. It would all have been lost. But you don't see that kind of aspect of Islam being taught today, for example, well, this in, is the sadness, in Tower Hamlets, you're not going to find that are
2: you? Once Ishti Had had gone, and once the Christians who had lived really in, I won't say a harmonious coexistence, but really quite a successful one in southern Spain, decided that they would assert themselves and kick out the Moors. That really was the, was the last straw, if you like, and, and we were partly to blame. So I'm always rather cautious about saying, well, these people are all terrible, because there's a long history to, 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 to get us where we are, and we need to understand that. So my view is that it is a shame that Islam now has reverted to the Wahhabist or absolutist uh, version of itself, which is rather extreme, and this is largely the influence of the oil wealth of Saudi Arabia, which follows the Wahhabist um, presentation of Islam, and has been quite sedulous uh, in quietly spreading it uh, through money all <coughs> over the world, including in the United Kingdom. But I think also, when we as Christians approach Islam, we too have to uh, again acknowledge that in the Crusade, we did not behave as our Lord and Master told us that we should. And we behaved brutally, and sometimes very brutally, wiping out men, women, and children wherever we found them, if they were not Christians. Now, that is not what the good book says we should do. And these wounds that we created are still festering in the breast of Islam, and I can understand that. Now, that doesn't mean, therefore, we cave in to the extremist presentation of Islam at all but it does mean that if we are to engage with them, we must know the history and be sensitive to it, so that we can lead them once again to restore uh, Ishtihad, and to restore also the love of scholarship, which was so very evident in the early centuries of Islam. For instance, the scientific method itself was given to us first, by Abu Ali ibn al-Hassan ibn al-Hussain ibn al-Hussain ibn al-Haytham. He was as proud of his lineage as I am of mine. And he was uh, an astronomer and mathematician and philosopher of science in 11th century Iraq and wrote in, in ancient Farsi. And he, you'll see him celebrated on Iraqi banknotes to this day. And it was he who said that the seeker after truth what a wonderful name for a scientist. The seeker after truth. Try telling that to some of the people that I'll be meeting in California shortly. The seeker after truth does not put his faith in any mere consensus, however broad, however venerable. Instead, he subjects what he has learnt of it to his own hard-won scientific knowledge and to scrutiny, experiment, investigation, inquiry, inspection, And checking and checking and checking again. The road to the truth, said al-Haytham, is long and hard. But that is the road that we must follow. Now, what more Christian sentiment could there be than that? What more noble sentiment for any scientist, or indeed for anyone, could there be than that? And it reminds me very much of what our blessed Lord said when... Pontius Pilate had said to him, "Quid est veritas? What is the truth?" And our blessed Lord had had provoked this question by saying, um, "You know that that I, uh, how did it go? Um, For this was I born. That's right. Unto this came I into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth." So you can see that in early Islam, as in Christianity even to this day, the search for the truth, whether it be the truth of religion, which is found through faith and through theologians meditating upon the faith that we're given, or whether through science, which is done through uh, reason and through investigation exactly as uh, Al-Haytham described, these are approaches which should unite true Islam and true Christianity. And it's on that that I would like to build. I don't think we can continue purely to take an antagonistic and confrontational approach to Islam. I don't think we should, therefore, curl up and let them walk all over us. I mean, there is a balance always to be struck in these things. But I think it is for us, as the Christians, who, uh, whose duty, above all else, is agapisis, diliges. thou shalt love. In Latin and Greek it's one word, in in English it's three. But thou shalt love, and that is the whole of the law. We have to love them too, even if they do not love us. Because if if we go on loving them, eventually it changes them. And it doesn't change us in a bad way, if we try. Now that may sound unduly wet, Does this mean we let our our guard down and allow the bombers to come in and blow up our cities? We've had that in London. So no, we have to keep our guard up. We have to maintain strong intelligence forces. We have to maintain, I think, a more satisfactory immigration system that says that no, they can't come here quite as freely as they have unless and until we are sure that they are willing to fit in to our culture it doesn't mean extinguishing theirs but it does mean that they must not be insisting for instance that their Sharia law should be applied in our country I think there are limits and and we must bring them to understand that in the the spirit of live and let live a balance must be struck that's what we should look for we shouldn't be looking to fight them we should be looking to accommodate them but without selling ourselves in the process
1: Lord Christopher Monckton, thank you very much. And thank you. And that was Lord Christopher Monckton, who I interviewed here in London on Tuesday. Next week, Bob Metz and I will continue our discussion of Christopher Monckton and will air exclusive audio from his luncheon with supporters at the International Free Press Society, his talk at the annual Nuremberg Lecture here at UWO, and the solution to the sphere and the cylinder puzzle he challenged us with last week. So, until then, you know what to do. Stay right, think right, be right and be right back here next week. Fade into color color into black and white. Under the bedclothes. A lot of people don't like flying on airplanes, but I actually don't mind it. Last time I was on a plane, I had three seats all to myself. 9A, 14B, and 21F. (laughs)